0: Hi, everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Atkinson podcast on JustTheNews.com. I hope you'll check out all of the Just The News podcasts. You can go to JustTheNews.com and see the list of them on the homepage. With the conviction in the George Floyd death while in police custody. We're going to go through some police use of force cases with one expert, and I'll bet there are some details here you've never heard before. In case you missed it, Scott Thuman did a really strong, comprehensive report on my television program, Full Measure, on Sunday, April 18th about what's happened in some communities where the policing has faced a lot of criticism and also defunding to the tune of millions and millions of dollars. In these communities and across the nation, violent crime has been seeing a dramatic uptick. It looks like we're going to be breaking records in 2020 and 2021 when all is said and done, including for homicides in some places. So I will just say that In covering law enforcement issues and policing versus community concerns for decades now, it sort of seems to be a pendulum that swings back and forth, which you'll hear me address more in just a moment. But it seems like police are invited or asked to be aggressive in some communities where there is high crime, and they're invited to do so by the community members, those who suffer in these neighborhoods and really want aggressive policing, Because there is the whole theory, and I think it's been fairly well supported, that when smaller crimes are prosecuted, that it results in making the overall safety profile in a community better. I think they call it the broken window syndrome. In terms of a criminal perspective, broken windows may not sound like much. We're talking about vandalism and trespassing, things like that but there's a whole theory that was documented in the 1980s by social scientists that said where there are visible signs of crime and bad behavior and civil disorder like broken windows, then it signals that more crime is to come. If a broken window is left and not repaired pretty soon, the rest of the windows will get broken out. And I think they've been able to say this doesn't just happen in run down poor neighborhoods. This also happens in neighborhoods that aren't run down yet, where there's window breaking that sort of leads to more crime and marks degradation of a neighborhood. So the notion is that if you do aggressive policing as some communities want and you stop the smaller crimes, you can somehow prevent more criminals from moving in and bigger crimes from occurring. I think there's been controversy surrounding this theory, but When the aggressive policing happens, that is often then followed as the pendulum swings by some people criticizing the police for being too aggressive. The police then pull back, and who suffers? It seems like the community members who wanted the aggressive policing are kind of left to fend for themselves. And Scott Thuman talked about this in his story on Full Measure, where in Minneapolis, as they've talked about not just removing millions of dollars from the police department, as they've already done, but replacing it entirely with some as-yet-undefined system. Well, there are community members who are up in arms about it, including African Americans, some of them now suing the city of Minneapolis to force them to hire more police officers, as required under the city charter. They have to have a certain number of police per capita or per person, and they haven't been able to meet that because who wants to be a police officer in Minneapolis right now? So as all of these conflicts are occurring, I thought it would be interesting to speak to somebody from a police perspective and a more global sense about some of these cases we've talked about and heard about on the news. So today I'm speaking with Jason Johnson. He's president of a group called the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund. I'll read you a little bit about what the fund, the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund, says about itself on a website The Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund has protected law enforcement professionals by fighting for their legal rights. Founded in 1995 by attorneys with law enforcement backgrounds, the group has led efforts to identify and support, through financial and legal assistance, duty-related legal expenses such as attorney's fees, court filings, litigation costs, legal advice, and other legal fees, as well as other support for law enforcement professionals and their families. Since 2000, the group says it has contributed over $2 million to offset legal and other expenses, as well as pro bono, which means free legal advice, to more than two dozen law enforcement professionals and their families. More than two dozen, wow. I thought it would be more than that, particularly with $2 million. But if you've ever been involved in legal proceedings, you know how fast those legal bills add up. So, this is a nonprofit that is supported solely, it says, through the generous contributions of individuals and organizations. So, before Jason Johnson was president of this group, he was deputy police commissioner in Baltimore from 2016 to 2018. Tough city, Baltimore. Tough city to be a police officer in, in many ways, a tough community for people to live in, depending on where you live. Before that, he was a 20-year career officer in the Prince George's County, Maryland police station where, by the time he left, he was the commander of internal affairs, which is the department that investigates alleged officer misconduct. He says part of that group's portfolio was investigating officer-involved deaths, officer-involved shootings in custody, deaths, and serious use of force. He's also an attorney. And the reason I spoke with him initially was working on a story on the shooting of the unarmed protester at the Capitol Hill riots, Ashley Babbitt. And I talked to him about that case, getting his thoughts, Uh, sort of to summarize that. He said that he's, of course, looking at the video. There's some limited video available of that sad incident. And he said that he had some initial pause and questions about the circumstances when he saw that video more so than some others. What would have led a police officer to use deadly force against her? And he said, even as much as he's read and watched news coverage of the case, he's not entirely sure what all the circumstances were. None of us are. There's been a tight lid kept on a lot of details, including the officer's name. And I will tell you, one name that's been widely circulated online is not the correct name. And I can also tell you, we will all know the name, Sooner rather than later, probably because there will be a civil lawsuit filed in this case, and I'm covering that for full measure. But I spoke with Jason Johnson in a broader conversation about police and use of force. So here we are.
1: I think that, that uh, the George Floyd case stands by itself um, among a, a field of other controversial police cases. And, and the reason I feel that way is that this is a case where there's video of a prolonged this isn't a split second decision this is a this is a nine or so minutes of a maneuver that i would say that anyone in law enforcement knows is is uh is proscribed we don't we don't put our knees on people's necks for that period of time.
0: Because is there a history with that where there's yeah. knowledge about how that restricts breathing yeah. and so on?
1: Well, there's a significant risk. There, there are a lot of risks involved when you put your knee across someone's neck or apply pressure to the back of a But person. you're trained to know that. Train, police are trained to know that. Now, some police departments do use a, car- a carotid restraint. And uh, there's been some talk from the defense, I think, that, that this was a sort of a modified version of a carotid restraint. Um, I don't, I, you know, as a retired cop, I don't find that compelling. I don't think it was a carotid restraint. Um, and I think most police that you talk to, if they're being honest with you and being frank with you, don't like what they see in that video at all. Uh, they're very uncomfortable with it. I actually anticipated that I, before the trial. I thought that there was going to be some reasonable doubt in, in causation. And then potentially there could be, even be some reasonable doubt after the, the reason the force was applied was explained. And I also thought in this case that I thought maybe uh, Derek Chauvin would testify. Uh, always a big risk to have a criminal defendant testify. But in a case like this, I felt that if, um, if his attorney could humanize him, because right now he's not, he's not regarded by most people who don't know him as a human being. I mean, he's just, a, a, they consider him a monster. And a, it, would, it may persuade some jurors just simply to have him humanize and have him explain in the first person why he did what he did. But uh, he elected not to testify. It's his right not to testify. He can't be penalized for that. But I thought maybe if he did, that, that could help him.
0: One of the things that may be confusing about these cases to people, particularly when they seem to go to a jury or to a judge, it's never clean, it seems like, where there is simply an innocent person walking down the street who's shot dead by a police officer without provocation. These are usually cases in which there's some sort of resisting arrest by a criminal suspect and a decision made in a split second. That makes it tough.
1: Yeah, that, that is the overwhelming majority of these cases. As I said before, the Chauvin case is a little bit different because it wasn't a split second decision. It, there were, was some resistance involved, but it, you know, the police activity that is most concerning took place over a long period of time. And certainly he could have changed, you know, Mr. Chauvin could have changed course at any point. But these other cases we're looking at, it's exactly what you said. There's some level of resistance um, and the police have, have to overcome that resistance. That's their job to do that. And the decision is made in a split second. In the case of deadly force, the decision is made in a split second. It can't, you know, they can't change, the police can't change the decision after that. And we rely very heavily now on reviewing video and, and, and breaking it down frame by frame. If you look at social media, there's lots of, you know, self-appointed experts out there that will really in painstaking detail break down the frames. Well, the, the officer didn't have that, Ability to, to hit pause and then say, okay, what should I do here? And you know, consult with others. You have to make the decision right there and then. And, and that's, I think, the difference. And it's very hard for anyone who has never been thrust into that situation to understand um, what that's like.
0: I think about that with the case recently of the 13 year old boy that was running from police carrying a gun, turned and was shot and killed. And people are trying to parse whether the gun had dropped out of his hand or he had thrown it at that point or not and then again thinking if the officer makes a wrong decision on his part um he's shot dead potentially so there's all these factors at play in the officer's mind when they're having to make that decision like what happens if they make the wrong decision and shoot well that's awful but if they also make the wrong decision and don't shoot and get killed that's that's awful as well
1: in our in our culture right now we we want instant gratification we want to um we want to look at a video and then have a desire we want to have the outcome this is right or this was wrong and all of the nuance that that really attends every one of these cases tends to be lost so we 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 don't just don't have meaningful conversations on social media and even you know most media outlets don't report kind of the other side you know like what was it like for that police officer how was that police officer trained and even without breaking down frame by frame what in real time what is the time difference between when the that, that uh, teenager dropped the gun. And when the officer, the officer had likely already made that mental decision, I'm I, this is a deadly force situation, I need to protect myself, before that gun fell out of the hand. It's just, your brain makes a decision and it executes it. And it happens like that. And, and I think the, the majority of the public doesn't quite understand how that works.
0: What was your position with the Baltimore Police Department during the Freddie Gray
1: death? So I arrived in Baltimore uh, a few months after uh, Freddie Gray's death uh, and ultimately became a deputy police commissioner. And and my portfolio there was was largely geared toward helping to reform the organization, uh, build its accountability systems and and its training and so forth.
0: So a lot of um, critical attention was put on the police department after the death of Freddie Gray. He was a suspect who was taken into custody, put in the back of a police van, tell me if I've got this right, not secured, necessarily like fastened in, and arrived at the police station with what they later understood was a spinal injury and died. And the officers, I believe six of them, three black and three white, were accused of taking part in giving him a rough ride, maybe intentionally jostling him around, which injured him. Is that basically the gist of it? You got it right. And in the end, none of the officers was convicted at the local level. And then the feds came in because sometimes they try to get another bite at the apple when that happens. And the feds didn't charge them either. Can you just talk about that case and why it was decided, where no jury apparently and no judge thought that these officers in the end had done had committed a crime?
1: It's because, um, again, uh, w- culturally we want to we want there to be action taken immediately, and 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 there's no hotter button issue right now than police use of force, and and that was true back in 2015 as well, maybe not to the same extent. So when that case happened, and the and the and there was. Uh, civil disorder, there were riots, there was destruction of property, there were fires in Baltimore. Um, the, the elected state's attorney, who ran um, partially on a platform of, of police reform, I guess, felt compelled to bring criminal charges before you know a full investigation could, could occur. And as a result, uh, the case was not worthy, uh, as we found out later, uh, the case was not worthy of prosecution. And the, the ultimate outcome was that no officer was convicted of, of anything
0: but and, was it still found that the department needed some reforms? Did yeah. some problems arise?
1: Yeah, so the, the Department of Justice, separate from the Freddie Gray investigation, did conduct a pattern and in practice investigation. And that's what they do uh, leading up to, um, you know, they're, 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 the, the, the Department of Justice way of implementing police reform in lo- state and local law enforcement agencies is a consent decree. Um, we didn't see any consent decrees in during the Trump administration, and that was their official policy not to pursue consent decrees in those cases. Uh, But that's now been, the new attorney general has dialed that back, and so now I do see, I do anticipate that we'll see that continue to happen. Baltimore is still under a consent decree. The
0: fed's stepping in and monitoring the patterns and practices of the police force. They
1: they impose very, very um, onerous and significant requirements on the police department. Do you
0: think that's a good idea?
1: So what I think on consent decrees is that they have, they do have a place. I think they in the Obama administration, they were overused, and when used, they go too far. They're not, um, they're not very achievable. So compliance is extraordinarily difficult under the, the, um, the bar that they have set. I think consent decrees could be used in some cities that have um, chronic issues with accountability, chronic issues with implementing proper training, to really to assist the agency, to help give it the boost it needs, to update its capacity. And unfortunately when when the Department of Justice goes in, they don't go in uh, and say, well, just fix this and fix this. It's extraordinarily comprehensive, onerous, invasive, and expensive. Baltimore will spend millions and millions of dollars um, on implementing the consent decree that these are dollars that could be spent elsewhere.
0: What's an example of something they would require?
1: Everything the department does has to get through the filter of the Department of Justice and the independent monitor. And, you know, most of what is required is good. So improving training, and when I say improving training, I don't mean just improving it a little bit. I mean every uh, down to the minutia of PowerPoint presentations that are presented to words used in PowerPoint presentations, all of those things have to get through the approval of the independent monitor and the Department of Justice. And that, and that repeats itself in every element of the department. In a place like Baltimore, in my assessment, um, all these things are pretty good. I think the problem in Baltimore's consent decree isn't going to be improving training, improving internal affairs. It's going to be uh, limitations on some of the proactive um, police activity that we know reduce crime. So um, although stop and frisk is, is a kind of a bad word nowadays, um, conducting... Proper constitutional investigative stops on the street uh, with the hopes of interrupting crime and identifying people involved in criminal activity. That's actually proven to reduce violent crime. And um, unfortunately, what we're seeing in our cities is that as we move away from that, we're seeing violent crime, as measured by homicides and non fatal shootings, increase dramatically.
0: Back with more right after a short break. <laughs> We're back talking to Jason Johnson, president of the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund. Well, I'm old enough to see that it's almost like a pendulum swings in some places where crime rises. The community, the people who live there demand aggressive policing. They want sometimes this very, very tough policing of their communities to to stop all of this. And then when the tough policing comes in, there are some complaints and there are civil rights claims raised and the police are then told to back off on that sort of policing and then crime goes up again. Is this a cycle?
1: Uh, it, it is a cycle that has in the past, the pendulum has swung in the past. And I've seen it myself in, in, during my police career, I've seen that pendulum swing. The moment that we're in right now is, is a wider, much wider pendulum swing than we have ever seen. And I'm afraid that the, the fallout from that is going to be that there is no return to a happy medium. That we are maybe forever stuck in a place where police are are um, to say that they are you know they may not be defunded uh, the funding for police may continue but they are um, maybe forever sidelined in the crime fight and and in the cities in in particularly in poorer communities that happen to be predominantly in America those are minority communities they suffer from violent crime more than anyone else. Okay, that's where, that's, that is where you will find a lot of violent crime. And as you pointed out, residents in those areas, they want policing. They need policing. They want it to be fair and just, and they want it to be constitutional. Um, and they, they deserve that. I mean, everyone deserves that. But unfortunately, um, that, is poli- that is where police are being dissuaded from engaging in the kinds of policing that we know prevent violent crime. And I'm just afraid it will, it will never come back.
0: Does it seem as though a lot of these controversies are largely isolated to America's cities? And the reason I say that is I report a lot outside of the cities where the communities seem to love their police forces. There is not this complaint. They welcome and appreciate the tactics and the strategies that their police agencies are using. So are a lot of these controversies that dominate the news environment really isolated to some cities and really not the story of policing in America at large?
1: There's no question that the, the, these controversial cases, um, and 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 not just the controversial cases, but the sentiment about policing in America, the negative sentiment that that has its finds its source in the cities. Okay, that's where it is. You're you're quite right. In the suburbs and in rural areas, you don't hear a lot of narratives that are negative about law enforcement. Those are pro law enforcement communities who largely support their police. So when we see pushback against policing, it is in the community in in urban areas, and it's also. In, most likely to be found in the, in the very places that are most challenged with violent crime. So look at the cities where there's been so much pushback against policing, places like Baltimore and Chicago, now in Minneapolis. Um, th- those are places that uh, you find a lot of pushback against police, but you also find uh, quite a bit of violent crime and, and rising violent crime, uh, dramatically so.
0: One of the great ironies, I think, of this whole discussion is that a lot of it started with the death of Michael Brown the hands up, don't shoot. And I think it probably raised a discussion that needed to happen in some cities where they have had problems and troubles for many years. On the other hand, I think people don't know widely that the hands up, don't shoot narrative by the Obama Justice Department or by the Eric Holder Justice Department was determined to have never happened. And that that was ultimately determined to be a justified shooting by the police officer who was said to be under attack repeatedly by Michael Brown who never raised his hands and said don't shoot. Do you run into a lot of people that don't know that never happened? Yeah.
1: Well, it's, it's not just that. that. That is a fact that, that uh, most people don't know that actually the Eric Holder Justice Department found that that, was not an, uh, that, that narrative never happened, and that was just um, something that occurred in the wake of the death of Michael Brown, and it took hold. And you know, we had members of Congress uh, posing uh, with their hands up. Uh, and we had, still,
0: by the way, on the anniversary of his death, all of the Democrat candidates tweeted out that he had been murdered and implied that the hands up, don't shoot scenario had happened as if it hadn't been discredited. This is the
1: frustrating thing for, for law enforcement. So even, even the most thoughtful um, and caring, and I think most, most law enforcement officers, they really do care about the communities that they serve. They wanna do a good job. They wanna have good relationships. They wanna help be part of the solution and not part of the problem. That, they, that it's very frustrating for them when they feel that the overwhelming narratives in many places across the country, it doesn't matter whether it's in a city or in a country, that the overwhelming narrative, what they see on the news and what they hear from their elected officials is this constant drumbeat of negativity about police that is not borne out by the facts. So when you hear people talk about Michael Brown uh, being murdered and hands up, don't shoot, that's just one example of people not fully taking in the facts. I'll give you one other example of something I saw recently where they did a poll across the political spectrum asking people if they thought the number of African-American, unarmed African-American men who were killed by police every year was around 10, around 100, around 1,000, or around 10,000. The truth is it's very close to 10. But the majority of people, regardless of their political um, ideology, more so on the left than the right, thought the number was closer to 1,000. Uh, many thought it was ten thousand. So that just goes to show you that the 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 information that's making it to the end, the, the public at large, whether it's through social media, through other forms of media, it's it's being distorted. Everything is being distorted, and breaking through that with factual information is, is extraordinarily difficult.
0: The last topic I want to address is the fact that. Police have a great responsibility because they are armed and justified to use deadly force if they deem it necessary. It's an awesome responsibility. Just because they are allowed to use deadly force and can justify it under the law doesn't mean it was the right thing to do. And yes, it's a split second decision, but obviously there are probably times when that decision shouldn't have been made, when that decision was wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe you can sympathize with how quickly they had to make it, but nonetheless, um, there's a better choice.
1: Yeah. I think that is true. I think there are those cases that exist where uh, it's sort of of the lawful but awful is is that where what the officer did, you know, was it objectively reasonable? Yes. Was it necessary or was it the the thing that most other officers would do? I think that's very legitimate. I I think the best way to overcome that, again, is training. And I think uh, police officers cannot receive too much training and the type of training i'm talking about is scenario based training it's the kind of training that potentially could have averted the tragedy that we saw in in um, brooklyn center minnesota with a weapon confusion situation between a taser and a gun the only way to overcome that type of situation is training 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 if that officer never at the range had been forced to transition between handgun and taser to rec- to really really build muscle memory in the difference then it's a training deficit. And I think that's more often than not when we see police officers do something that while it may or may be lawful, isn't really what we what we want, uh, it's, it's, it's due to training.
0: And maybe it's too much to expect criminal suspects if they've done, done something wrong to cooperate with police. But I was told as a young woman in my 20s and by my husband who is in law enforcement repeatedly, don't resist the police. Obey them at the time and you can Argue with them later if they're doing something you think is inappropriate. In handling the arrest, would it go a long way if people really emphasize that to themselves and to others that if the police are doing something, they want to ask you a question, they're pulling you over, or they're making an arrest? The best time to fight that would be later and not resist arrest in the moment.
1: If if, if no one resisted arrest, there would be very, there would be almost no use of force by law enforcement. The, the, um, unfortunately, law enforcement is very hesitant to say that um, because it, it almost it shifts it shifts the blame to members of the community and, and law enforcement agencies are uh, hesitate to do that. Um, but it, it would be helpful if there was some education, uh, some formal education out there about how, you know how is the best way to interact with law enforcement. And um, you know, part of it is maybe trading places. And I I remember early in my career in in Prince George's County, we actually had a formal program in the high schools where it was, there was trading places where a police officer and a young person, high school age person would um, role play as as one another for a short period of time, just to kind of give everyone involved an opportunity to see what it's like from the other's perspective. And I think on a grander scale, if we could just pause for a little while and for law enforcement officers to take a few minutes and think about what it's like for people who are being stopped or arrested, and for everyone else who's not a law enforcement officer to think about what must it be like to be a law enforcement officer and to, and to enter the unknown. You know, every time you make a traffic stop, you have no idea who you're pulling over, or whether there's a weapon in the car, or whether the person is wanted for. When they're reaching a for something, crime.
0: you don't know if it's a gun or yeah. something in their pocket. So you just
1: don't know, and it's hard to appreciate that if you've never really thought about it. So I think I think that's my way of saying that. I think if we can all just kind of look at things from from the other perspective, it would go a long way. <laughs>
0: I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Check out justthenews.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the Cheryl Ackeson podcast, my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours, and all the Just the News podcasts wherever you like to listen. Also, I hope you will take a look at my book, Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. Go to Amazon and read the reviews. That might help convince you that there is information there you need to find out more about. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.